A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen. I am here with my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, and we are here today to fulfill a promise that I made over a year ago, way back in the First Family of Fundamentalism series. What promise might that be? So there was a video that we watched for that series where First Baptist Church of Hammond officials were announcing to the congregation that Jack Scott was no longer going to be the pastor. And I had you watch this video, and I'm sure you remember being quite shocked by how ill-fitting the suits of the men on stage were. Yes, I remember this very clearly now. I feel like this is burned into your brain. It's just one of the ways in which I've traumatized you for life. You know what I've come to realize, though? It's it's not that like the suits were like poorly tailored it's just that their style was aggressively late 1990s which meant that everything was just loose fitting that was just what was in style in the late 90s right but the video was made in 2012 well 15 years out of that's like on brand for the ifb 15 years out of date that's fine that's what we should expect from them but anyway at the time i promised you that we would come back eventually and tell you about 
one of the men in that video, and that's David Gibbs Jr. So which guy was David Gibbs? I'll link the video for anyone interested. This is going to be one of those episodes where there's a Patreon post that anybody can access regardless of whether or not they financially support the show with all my links because there are a lot for this episode. If you watch that video, there's a very short introduction by Eddie Lapina, who has been the chief fixer at First Baptist Church of Hammond for a very long time. And then he finally found a problem he couldn't fix by himself when Jack Scott committed the crime that he did. Eddie Lapina introduces Mr. Duff, who is the chairman of the deacon board, who speaks really briefly as well and says that they have asked David Gibbs Jr. and the CLA to participate in their internal investigation of Jack Scott. So David Gibbs is the third guy that gets up in that video. He's the one that sounds kind of like this. He talks very deliberately with a higher timbre. <laughs> I remember now. I don't know if our audience loves my Gibbs impersonation, but I love my Gibbs impersonation, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> you sound just like him, man. I, I think it's you, pretty you good. You do. Yeah, for this episode, we've uh, had I've had to watch uh, numerous clips of David Gibbs speaking. I, I think that your impression is pretty solid. It's pretty spot on. And that's one that my brothers and I would do growing up. But that's we're going to be the guy that you would impersonate. He he's easy to impersonate. Oh. I'm not a very, a very good impressionist, but if somebody has a really distinctive voice, I can do it. So today yeah. we're going to talk about David Gibbs Jr., his son David Gibbs the third. And their organization, the Christian Law Association. Yeah. And this is an organization that has been very involved in many big national legal battles over the years. That, among other things, is what we're going to be discussing. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, just got to say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast. Uh, we're the show about my co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about the real and present threat that cult and cult-like ideologies pose to society as a whole and is our mission to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, there are a few things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon where we have extended and uncensored versions of all of the episodes to our show. Uh, you can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Uh, Sadie, what else can you do? Is there anything I'm forgetting? Um, you can tell people who you think would like our show. You can tell your friends or your family or your worst enemy or really whoever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's it. And before we get into today's episode, I just need to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons. So who do we have? We have Brittany. Brittany is a new one. I just want to say it's Brittany, bitch. <laughs> Welcome, Brittany. I wasn't going to not do that. Welcome, Brittany. Uh, we are uh, hashtag Team Brittany, hashtag Free Brittany over here, so we love you. Crystal Patterson, Dee Dee Keppel, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Hope Norum, Jessica Tambo, Tambo like Rambo, Kate Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Mary Martin, uh, who uh, we've just found out played Peter Pan. In, the, in the, right, yeah. Somebody, that, am I thinking of the right somebody person? with the same name, uh, played Peter Pan on Broadway. 
how do you know that it isn't the same person that played Peter Pan on Broadway? I didn't say it wasn't the same person. I just said that somebody with the same name did. Okay, well, in my headcanon, Mary Martin that gives to our Patreon played Peter Pan on Broadway. Um, we have Morgan Alicia, uh, Rachel Bernadowitz, uh, Rebecca Hoyt, uh, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. Uh, thank you so much, Wes the Cowboy. Uh, you're the rootinest tootinest. So, uh, <laughs> I needed that laugh today. I really did. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's low you. energy for both of us, but that's okay. We're uh, going to do it. Thank you so much to the Faith Promise Missions tier patrons and to everybody who supports us on Patreon. We'll be announcing the date for our next Faith Promise Missions Zoom hangout soon, so keep an eye out for that. And I also want to do an all-patron video hangout slash live show sometime around our summer podcast anniversary. So, Sadie, I've gone to the CLA's website. And if you don't mind, I would like to read their mission statement. Sounds great. Go ahead. Okay. So here's what it says on the CLA's website, uh, Christian Law Association. Since 1969, the CLA has been providing free legal assistance to Bible-believing churches and Christians who are experiencing difficulty in practicing their religious faith because of governmental regulation, intrusion, or prohibition in one form or another. CLA receives in excess of 100,000 phone calls annually, not counting the thousands of pieces of correspondence from those who are in some way facing legal difficulties for doing what the Bible commands. These cases involve Christians arrested for witnessing to others in public, public school students being told that they do not have the right to read their Bibles at school, Churches being excluded from communities, Christians being fired for sharing their faith at work, and thousands of other shocking assaults on our precious religious freedoms. CLA provides free legal services based in part on the generosity of God's people. Your contribution to the CLA is 501c3 tax deductible. The Christian Law Association exists to provide Christian liberty for your children and grandchildren. Yeah, so that's that's well, what it says. <clears throat> that's a lot of people being arrested for witnessing in public. Is it? Like I, I don't know how many 100,000 phone calls a year? I mean, that's just 100,000 people. That might just be 100,000 people being like, I tried to soul win to somebody and they told me to go to hell. Can I sue them for uh, libel or something? Yeah. Like, who the, knows? Okay, this might be, be the same 10,000 people calling 10 times each. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. True. It receives in excess of 100,000 phone calls annual. Who knows who these phone calls are coming from? They might be counting telemarketers. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, they're they're like a legit law firm and like the legal defense organization like they, they, they're I, I'm, I have no doubt that they probably do receive like a hundred thousand phone calls from people i'm not specifically trying to debunk that number it just seems like a really big number to me that's yeah i mean you're right about that uh, so one thing I, I tried hard to figure out and i couldn't figure out anywhere 
Um, and, and this is the organization that was started by David Gibbs. I could not figure out, like from looking at this website, where he went to law school. And I'm wondering why that is. Like I've looked on the CLA website. It doesn't say what his alma mater is. Usually law firms will like provide that and say, oh, our guy went to graduated Yale Law or I got our person graduated from Michigan Law or something like that, you know. Yeah. And you you asked me. If I knew, because you couldn't find it, and I tried to find his LinkedIn, which is usually a pretty good resource if you need to know where somebody went to college, couldn't find that either. I don't think the CLA is technically a law firm. I think it's technically a law ministry because Mm. David Gibbs Jr. does have an actual law firm. It's Gibbs and Craze in Cleveland. I wasn't able to find a website for that firm either. So I'm not I'm not specifically alleging that they're being shady. I'm just saying that I think they're bad at the internet. Question. To get to law school, you need a bachelor's degree from an accredited university. So is it a bad look like for fundies if you're trying to appeal to fundies if you've been to college that isn't Bible college? I think with a in a law situation it would be seen as like a regrettable necessity. Mm. Like, oh, well, he had to do it. And it's un- it's so unfortunate that you have to do something like that, especially because um, David Gibbs would have gone to college before Pensacola Christian College had a pre-law program. Or like Liberty University or something like that. Yeah. Right. But I think it would be seen as similar to how Doug Phillips had to attend university to get his law degree. It's not a point in your favor, but it's not going to disqualify you from being accepted in the fundy world. I also wasn't able to turn up um, his alma mater. I can tell you that his son, David Gibbs III, graduated from Duke University School of Law. Oh, okay. Well, that's like an actual prestigious law school. That yes, you would very legitimate. You went yeah. This organization, from what we can tell and basically from uh, everything that we know, is basically it acts as a legal defense for anything remotely related to Christianity. So I looked at their website. They do have a section where like you can sign up and they will send you updates on how to make sure your church doesn't get dinged for COVID-19 violations. However, I am wondering why First Baptist Church of Hammond would get them involved in the Jack Scott case, considering that his offenses didn't actually have anything to do with religious practice. They had everything to do with him being like an abuser and a pedophile. So the CLA and David Gibbs didn't represent Jack Scott in his criminal case. What they were there for is to give legitimacy to the internal investigation of Scott's crime. The stated purpose of this internal investigation was to make sure that they had all the evidence and make sure that no other crimes were also committed by Jack Scott. So this isn't at all nefarious. This is actually what the right thing to do is. If you find out somebody who works for you is committing serious crimes, you get lawyers involved to make sure that everything to do with your investigation is on the up and up. I agree that an internal investigation headed by an outside expert that promises to turn over all the information they gather to the proper authorities is a good response to finding out that someone who works for you has been committing crimes. But you have to remember that... That's kind. Of, that's contingent on the investigating agency t- actually turning over information to authorities is what makes that a good idea. We'll get to that. You also have to remember that in this mm. church, 
Jack Scott held the position of pastor, which is very much like a CEO when it's a pastor of such a large ministry. So the church was suddenly without a leader and investigating the former leader. So this was a really chaotic time. And having somebody there to help run that process was something the church really needed. So the other reason that the CLA gets involved is to protect the church itself from any potential liability. So make sure that they do turn over everything that they know to the proper authorities and don't try to hide evidence. Like, so say somebody who works at the church is trying to protect somebody else who works at the church who maybe isn't Jack Scott, but who knew about it. So then they, that's what you have to suss out if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're the CLA, if you're David Gibbs. Right. And, and all of this sounds really great, but when you look into the CLA's record as an organization, it becomes apparent that they are not the lawyers that you call when you want to be transparent. They are more likely the lawyers you call when you want to cover something up and sweep it under the rug. So what makes you say that? Well, the long list of abusers that they have defended, mostly. Uh, I want to talk about the organization first, and then later we'll get into some of the cases that the CLA has been involved with. The CLA website claims that the organization was founded in 1969, and that is the most common date that I've seen around the internet. I did find two other sources, including Christianity Today, that cited the year as 1977. So how does the CLA make a name for themselves as like the preeminent Christian defense law firm, or excuse me, law ministry? So according to the Christianity Today article that I'm linking, David Gibbs traveled the country as an evangelist, and the CLA is actually a nonprofit. So he traveled, solicited donations for the CLA, and then the CLA funds legal defense through CLA-approved or CLA staff lawyers, including David Gibbs, formerly including his son, David Gibbs III, for pastors in churches and homeschool families. And this 100% tracks with what I knew of Gibbs growing up because I heard him speak as an in that evangelistic capacity quite a bit. Oh, okay. So I see what you when you're saying it's like a legal ministry. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so how like evangelist missionaries will go around saying, these are the good works I've been doing. Um, I've built a church in Uganda. Please donate more money so we can go back and uh, spread the word of Jesus to the people of Africa. Right. That's exactly what it is. It's a legal ministry. So when David Gibbs III was still with the CLA, he called himself a legal missionary. And that's how that's how they see themselves. Okay. So David Gibbs is going around saying... I've won these cases. I've successfully defended a teacher who was fired for trying to have prayer in school. Please donate money so we can continue to fight back against the government that wants to outlaw Christianity. Right. That's that's what he's going around saying. I always heard about the CLA growing up, and it was in the context of if Christian teachers refuse to teach evolution and their job is threatened over that, the CLA is who is going to show up to defend them. Okay, so did David Gibbs or or anyone from the CLA ever come to your church growing up? Not that I remember. I do remember them being referenced really often. When I was growing up, there was a lot of fear about the government coming to shut us down. Christianity was going to become illegal, or it was going to be illegal to say that homosexuality was a sin, or it was going to be illegal not to teach evolution in our Christian school, and that when one of those things eventually happened— the CLA was going to be like Superman just swooping down out of the sky to save us all. I think now would be a great time to take a look at some of the cases that the CLA has been involved with. Yeah, I think we should, because I get the feeling that what they say they do is only a small part of what they actually do. 
the first case that I want to reference is a case in which um, David Gibbs actually was the defense attorney, and that's the case of A.V. Ballinger in 1993. So A.V. Ballinger is a case that we've had on our list of topics that we wanted to cover for a while. So I think in the future, in a later episode, we're going to have more in-depth coverage of this case. Yes, we'll probably get to an episode eventually. The Ballinger case started in 1993. A.V. Ballinger was the First Baptist Church of Hammond deacon who was accused of molesting a small child who was in his Sunday school class and another young child who was on his bus route. Jack Hiles came strongly to his defense because of Jack Hiles, if I didn't see it, it didn't happen policy. And also because Hiles had just kind of, was just kind of coming out on the other side of the Sumner and Nischik and Voyle Glover allegations against him. So Hiles was extra sensitive to, you know, defending people who are being accused. So even after Ballinger was convicted, Jack Hiles continued to stand by him and say that he didn't believe that Ballinger had done anything wrong. So Ballinger was convicted. Yes. So David Gibbs lost. Right. Um, After the conviction, Gibbs called what was happening to him adversity, which seems like maybe not the best word to describe being a convicted sex offender. Yeah. No, adversity is like I grew up poor and, you know, my parents weren't always around because they were working to put food on the table. Like I'm I'm not like I chose to harm someone and now I have to face consequences for it. Yeah, Um, not at all. Can I play a clip of Gibbs speaking about Ballinger's quote-unquote adversity? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. My Bible says that the adversity that this man is having to endure is to be entertained and born and remembered by every single Christian. We also being in the body. What's happening to this man is happening to my faith. It's happening to my Savior. It's happening to my testimony. I am to remember. The word remember there doesn't just mean that I'm supposed to kind of mull it in my mind. It means I'm supposed to identify with. I'm here tonight to tell you that I'm committed to doing some things. And I want to encourage you to do some of these things. You listen to me, first of all. I believe the Bible commands us to identify clearly with those that for doing right are suffering adversity. I see across America Christians that grow shy. Christians that say, boy, I hope it all turns out. I'll pray for you. But they're nowhere to be found when the person's standing in the battle. Thank God this church is not like that at all. Thank God this is a church that steps up with pride and says, and it is an honor to be identified with Brother Ballinger. I want you to know that this is a man who's worthy of that. And this is a Bible that commands us to do that, to openly cast our identity. Wow. So he is doubling down on this. He fully believes that Ballinger is innocent and has been just targeted for being a Christian. Yes. And he's saying this man's battle is our battle. If they can target him for being a Christian, they could do the same thing to any one of us. So beware. So not only is he defending a convicted pedophile, he's also fear mongering in the highest degree. 
So do we think Gibbs is speaking in good faith here? Because it's plausible to me that he is so swept up in this idea of uh, Christian victimhood and, and martyrdom that he genuinely believes that Ballinger is innocent. And for me, like, obviously, I, I like I definitely think that saying I don't think he did it is much better than saying, well, he did it, but he's got an excuse, um, which was an enlarged prostate or, mm. you know, she wasn't a virgin or, you know, it doesn't matter like Jack Scott did. Or do we think that he's speaking in bad faith and this is basically just like, okay, I came in and lost this case. Now I'm going to fear monger and try to, you know, I will, get people to give me more money. I will say that his demeanor and his presentation of himself does really make it seem that he's speaking in good faith. That in his honest opinion, the government is targeting Christians and Christian ministries and that any one of us could be next. And while Gibbs didn't come to my church, I've heard him speak several times. And I can tell you that he's an extremely engaging speaker. He comes across very sincere. But on the other hand, you do have to remember that his organization, the CLA, depends on donations from people who think my pastor could be the next person to be targeted for his faith. I could be the next person to be targeted for my faith. If he was fear-mongering, there would be a good financial reason for him to do so. Also, if Jack Hiles gets up there and says, this man didn't do it. If I didn't see it, it didn't happen. And David Gibbs gets up there and says, well, Jack, legally speaking, Jack Hiles is wrong. Or he gets up there and and he says, well, maybe he did do it. I'm just his defense attorney, so I'm required to defend it. Like, that's not going to be good enough for First Baptist Church of Hammond. No, but I mean, it's also not what a good defense attorney would say, at least in public. That's true. There's a difference between like saying to the press, and newspapers on the courthouse steps, you know, an injustice has been done, and then like going on with your life and saying, We stand with Brother Ballinger, and if they came for him, they can come for you too. Like, those are two very different things. That's true. There's a difference between saying those two things. He did go way above and beyond to defend Ballinger, and also I think he went way above and beyond to please Jack Hiles. According to Cindy Hiles' biography of her father, The CLA was brought before pastor school in 1978, where a massive amount of money was raised to keep them in business. So David Gibbs owed a lot, both literally and metaphorically, to Jack Hiles. And I would hypothesize that he felt that he had to keep Jack Hiles happy in order to stay in business. So I think it's interesting that we're starting off our discussion of the CLA with a defeat. Um, Because like this A.B. Ballinger, they lost that case. Yes. Because this makes me think of something that isn't, yeah, this isn't exclusive to the CLA, but like a characteristic tendency that I've seen of, of like many legal defense foundations and funds is that, sure, you know, they win a case and then they, you know, take their victory lap. They fundraise off of the, the cases that they win. Um, they, wear their, they wear their wins on their chest. But also I see them wear their L's on their chest just as much like so they'll go out and they'll say our enemies defeated us please give us more money so this won't happen again like like and this is what will happen to you if we're not here to protect you and it could be an organization like the CLA that's you know out here defending like pedophiles like A.V. Ballinger but I've also seen it used a lot by orgs you know uh, if there's a, a legal defense fund that's defending like reproductive rights they'll be like there was this court decision this is a really bad court decision please give us more money so we can fight this court decision that's like a legitimate strategy that people use I'm not saying that organizations are bad for for 
or anything for using the strategy. Like it's just a tactic that I've noticed. Well, it's an effective tactic because what reproductive rights organizations and the CLA have in common is one big thing. They are funded by people who feel that their rights are in danger and people who want to support others whom they believe are having their rights infringed on. And like these people who uh, feel like that many people's lives or maybe even their own lives are going to depend on this work. Right. Uh, yeah. In some cases, they're absolutely right. You know, like we, we talked about in our abortion episode, people's lives are actually in danger because of that. So I want to get into a few more cases that the CLA has been involved in. Yeah. OK. What's next on the court docket? So before I go into more specific cases, I do want to make a note that CLA was the general counsel for ACE for over 20 years. And during that time, ACE faced about 150 lawsuits, which were mostly over accreditation type issues. Just, I don't know, just FYI, that seemed important. Meaning what? So like they're saying ACE isn't a legitimate form of education and doesn't adequately prepare children to go out into the world? Because if that's what they're getting sued for, then they're going to be like... (laughs) No. (laughs) Serious trouble. So actually, actually, no. Um, It's way more obnoxious and dumb than that, actually. So here's one that I turned up. This isn't against ACE, the company, but David Gibbs, it heavily involves ACE curriculum. And David Gibbs Jr. was the defense lawyer for this case. The case is State of Nebraska versus Faith Baptist Church of Louisville, Nebraska. So it's the state suing the church? Yes. Okay. So this is a 1981 case, and the state of Nebraska was suing the school. The state of Nebraska had a compulsory educational law that said that children between the age of 7 and 16 must attend school, and that for a school to count under this compulsory compulsory education law... Teachers in the school must have a bachelor's degree or higher to be qualified to teach. But if I recall correctly, ACE doesn't have teachers. They have monitors. Right. And that's where this gets real ridiculous. Right. Because the monitor can just be anybody. The monitor can just be like some old guy from the church who is volunteering. The state of Nebraska informed the pastor of this church, Pastor Everett Sullivan. Is that how you'd say that? Sullivan? I wasn't able to find a pronunciation for this person's last name. I apologize. But they they informed this pastor that if he would apply for accreditation, that the state would approve ACE and would exempt his school from the rule that said that teachers have to have bachelor's degrees. So all the pastor had to do was apply for accreditation. And then he also needed to submit reports of what children were in his school and their attendance because the government needed that information to enforce the compulsory education laws. And then that was all that they needed from him. That seems perfectly reasonable. Like, he, I mean, he can't be the only pastor using ACE in Nebraska, can he? No, of course he's not. Like, And of course, this sounds reasonable, but Pastor Sullivan, Sullivan did not think so. His view was that the government has no say over who or what is accredited to be in his church school because the school is a ministry. So even to have to fill out an application is a violation of his religious freedom. Because that's his freedom. This is like a Kent Hovind situation where he like he would not have violated any laws if he had just decided to file as like a 501c3. But then he was like, having to do basic paperwork is like oh my freedom, my, my freedom. I don't have to do any paperwork. I just have to say I'm. 
I declare bankruptcy. Uh, I mean, you're you're not wrong about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So refusing to fill out paperwork to prove a point, which is pretty much what Kent Hovind did and very much what this pastor did. Sullivan said that mixing the Bible in with education is a command of his religion. I don't agree, but fine. And that if he applied for accreditation, the government would be able to come in and inspect his school. And since the government has no right to inspect God's property, meaning his ministry, he will not be applying for accreditation. God, this is so pedantic. God's property. Oh, my God. Yes. This was apparently a huge deal. 1981 was when the Supreme Court of Nebraska declined to hear an appeal. But the case went on for like five years before and after this with David Gibbs representing the church. In 1983, Jerry Falwell stated his support for the church on his television program and actually went to Nebraska to film a segment about this. And when the pastor and several fathers of children from the church were arrested for contempt of court, over 150 fundamentalist pastors showed up to protest. I'm trying to imagine working for like the state of Nebraska, and these people are making such a stink about not wanting to apply for something that they were pretty much like dead set pre-approved for anyway. Like, and they're just like, now we've got to arrest you. Come on, guys, be reasonable. Yeah, it's just, it's literally just, you can't tell me what to do. And I'm going to make you arrest me for it and put me up in jail. But out of the other side of my mouth, I'm going to complain about wasting, quote unquote, wasting money on every social program that there is. This is so fucking juvenile, I swear. This is so juvenile. Oh but David Gibbs Jr., Christian legal Superman, just swoops down out of the sky every time a Baptist pastor is in danger of throwing a tantrum like a toddler because someone tried to get him to do anything at all. Yeah, I don't know if you can tell this, but I am rolling my eyes so hard that you might be able to hear it through the microphone. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can. Sounds like bowling, <laughs> like pool balls, just like clink, click, clack. Okay. So this is just a, an extra little bit that I picked up along the way. But do you remember in the ACE episode, I was wondering, I mentioned that Lester Roloff is like a major character in the paces and I couldn't figure out why. And I was wondering, like, what's the connection? I know that Lester Roloff was a big fan of ACE. I know he used it in his homes, but there's got to be more of a connection than that for ACE to be such a fan of Lester Roloff back. Well, I found the connection. Yeah. It's David Gibbs. Mr. Gibbs. David Gibbs was also Lester Roloff's lawyer. Really? Yeah. And the CLA represented Roloff Homes in several major child abuse cases. Really? Okay. So you'll remember that Lester Roloff had cases about, um, are you abusing those children? And he also had cases about more mundane stuff, like, do the Roloff homes have to comply with state regulations for child care licensing for child care facilities? Gibbs was his lawyer for both of those types of cases. That is hilarious to me. It's hilarious to me that I didn't catch it when we did the Lester Roloff episode. It's so funny that, like... Lester Roloff is this guy that does all this stuff and then the CLA defends him. And then he also gets hyped up in ACE 
And then he uses ACE in his roll off homes and ACE has material talking about how great he is. That's yes. like, you know how when professors assign their own textbooks. Right. And and it makes Roloff seem even more like a fundy social climber of some kind, because he also went to such lengths to get in good with Brother Hiles to the point that they put his plane on college property after he crashed it. If I recall correctly, the state of Texas was coming after Roloff in what he called the Christian Alamo because David Gibbs was the David Gibbs was the guy defending him. Right. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, Roloff lost that case. Yes. Like big time. Like, yeah, he had to shut everything down and start over again under like a new company name because they said you can't run homes in the state of Texas anymore. And so he like. Yeah. And and some of them moved to other states and some of them got taken over by other people, which we're going to talk about actually in the back half of this episode. The Christianity Today article that I read, which is from the late 80s insinuated that David Gibbs doesn't prepare adequately for his cases and that that may be the reason for his less than stellar win record. Since we're talking about a lawyer, I am making no such allegation myself, but that's what that article said. Well, according to the CLA website, they get more than 100,000 phone calls every year from Christians who believe that they are being persecuted. So surely they can't you know, go whole hog into every single one of those. There's just not enough days, not enough hours in the day. I did read a report of a case that he supposedly won. Unfortunately, this is from a site called the Baptist Bulletin. It's just like a a fundamentalist blog. This could be totally true, but there's no date, no case title, no state provided in the write-up of this case. So there's nothing that I can look up to try to confirm that it is true. All I can tell you is that the date would be before 2007 because that's when this article was published. So take it from a, take it with a grain of salt. This does seem legitimate to me, but I can't confirm its its accuracy. I'm just going to read the write-up from the Baptist Bulletin of this case. A Christian lady was fired from her job because she refused to work on the Lord's Day. At the time she was hired, the employer was closed on Sundays, but she did at that time inform the employer about her convictions. When the employer decided to open on Sundays, this lady's refusal to work resulted in her termination. Advised to file an employment discrimination complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, she rejected a suggestion to seek representation from the ACLU and instead turned to CLA. After a three-year legal process, a jury ultimately ordered her reinstated and her back wages paid. Wow. So I, I don't know. They don't give me enough details here to try to confirm this case, but it sounds legit. I I don't want people being forced to work on days that violate their religious convictions. This seems like a clear EEOC violation on the employer's part. So if the story is true and I don't have any particular reason to think that it's not true, this would be a case that Gibbs or at least the CLA won and for good reason. Yeah, that is completely fair. I am 100% on her side of this. The one thing I I do think is funny is that uh, they're like the ACLU. uh, She could have had representation from the ACLU, but she decided that she didn't want the ACLU. She went to the CLA instead because she's a good Christian. Yeah, the the fundies are really, really not about the ACLU. I wouldn't think they would be, no. Yeah, they're they're not fans. So I want to talk about one other case that directly involved David Gibbs and the CLA before we go to break. 
Okay, what, what case is that? So when Bill Gothard was accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault by many young women who had been at the ATI training centers, the IVLP asked David Gibbs Jr. to head up their internal investigation, the one that ended with Billy the Goth being removed from the leadership position that he held. Wow. So he like they must have found way too much evidence of wrongdoing to be able to sweep it completely under the rug. Yes, but I think that was pretty much yeah. a given with the sheer volume of evidence and allegations against Gothard. There was just a lot there. There were so many people coming out to say that they were included in this. So he steps down and that's kind of it. No one else is implicated. Um, right. Yeah, so like, because oftentimes, you know, the suit will be that there is like a culture of harassment or wrongdoing or misconduct that's perpetuated not just by the leader, but by others in the circle. But they did none of that. Yeah, as far as I know, it was just Bill Gothard who stepped down as the leader of the IBLP. It's interesting, though, because I didn't know any of this until I was researching for this episode. David Gibbs was a popular speaker. At ATI and IBLP conferences, he was closely connected to Gothard and the IBLP, much more closely than I would have ever guessed. This is so interesting because I knew David Gibbs from hearing him speak at pastor school at First Baptist Church of Hammond. And it's really unusual for someone to be that highly regarded and that involved in both IFB and IBLP leadership. Really? Okay. Yeah, there there are plenty of like, there's plenty of crossover of like IBLP people who stand fundamentalist Baptists and vice versa. And we read each other's books or we might have each other come to be a guest speaker at our church. Um, but there is so little crossover of people who are high up in leadership of both. So how many successful Fundy defense team lawyers are out there, though? Probably, so probably just the CLA. <laughs> Okay, so that's it. This is just like they're their the guy. only ones who, that that I know of who are actually like IFB fundamentalists. There are plenty of other Christian law groups and Christian law firms and so on and so forth. But CLA are the only ones that I'm aware of that are fundamentalists. According to the Chicago Tribune, another lawyer from Gibbs organization actually did the Gothard investigation. Um, so David Gibbs was involved, but he wasn't the head of it. David Gibbs personally did head up the investigation into Jack Scop, which is what we started this episode with. With the Gothard case, so did Bill Gothard have to admit any wrongdoing as part of him stepping down, or was it, or did the IBLP have to release any details of their investigation regarding Gothard's alleged wrongdoing? So the thing is, whenever Gibbs or the CLA head up one of these investigations, they fall back on several phrases that they almost always use. What are those? You can hear them in the video that I linked where Gibbs announces that he will be doing the internal investigation on Jack Scott. If you know anything about this at all, if you have any information, please bring it to the deacon board or bring it to the investigating committee so that we can report it to the proper authorities. You will, what you will never hear him say, what he should say is, if you have information, here's the detective working this case. This is his phone number and email. It's always, always going to be, if you have anything, bring it to us, bring it to church leadership, bring it to the deacons so that we can handle this. And then we will report it all to the police when it's time. Trust us. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess like if if you're ever worried about whether or not you've personally committed a crime, 
it's always better to talk to a lawyer before going to the police and being like, hey, I did something the other day. I was wondering if it was illegal, right? You know, right. so on one sense, it's smart. Like if it's yourself that you're worried about, that's smart advice. But if it's somebody else that you're covering for. Mm, yeah, he's saying if sketchy. you are the victim of a crime, make sure you talk to us and not the police. Interesting. And well, you know, what's really interesting is that he knows that if there's a lawsuit about this or if this does go to court, that he or someone he's affiliated with is going to be the defense lawyer. Interesting. Oh, so he gets both sides of it. There you go. Yeah. So if he ends up defending the church or the pastor or the child molester deacon in court, he has already talked to all the possible prosecution witnesses. That's sneaky. Yeah, it's it's very sneaky. So I'm ready to go take up the offering if you're ready. When we come back, I want to shift focus to David Gibbs III, who worked for the CLA at one point. You'll see. It's an interesting story. Yeah, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back. We are talking about DG, uh, David Gibbs, and the CLA, uh, the, the Christian Law Association. This is essentially both a sword and a shield for fundamentalism, a way for them to protect themselves from any consequences of their actions or legal liabilities, insulate the damage that any misdeeds may cause to the greater fundamentalist ecosystem. And also, as we are going to discuss a little bit later, it is there to try to attack those who are political enemies of fundamentalism through legal action as well as wedge issues. So when we talk about people who are protecting others from the consequences of their actions, when we talk about attempts at damage control, we have to talk about David Gibbs III. DG3. Okay, DG3, let's do as he DG3 may be referred is, to in the in the rest of yeah. this episode. 
We've got David Gibbs. David Gibbs is David Gibbs Jr. and uh, DG3 is David Gibbs the third. Okay. Right. Just uh, and people get them confused a lot, so we're gonna do our very best to make sure we properly differentiate them for all y'all. Yeah. So David Gibbs the third joined his father as part of the CLA after becoming an attorney in 1993. David Gibbs Jr., the father, had just come off several major cases defending people who were involved with Lester Roloff and his legacy, even though Roloff was already dead. Lester Roloff died in the early 80s. Pe- in a plane crash. In a plane crash, right. We talked about that extensively on the episode we did about him. So people like Wiley Cameron uh, took over the Roloff troubled teen homes and as we talked about on that episode, it's not that Lester Roloff was not abusive. He absolutely allowed and encouraged horrific child abuse in the troubled teen homes that he ran. But I personally believe, and from everything I've ever read, the people who took over the homes after him were significantly worse. For what it's worth, um, almost every single sexual assault allegation that I've found from Roloff homes happened after he died. So, yes, Lester right. Roloff was terrible, but the people who took over for him were were a whole different level of bad. Right. Because I remember from the episode that we did about Lester Roloff, one of the things that we thought was an anomaly was that there was a, a surprising lack of sexual abuse at the Roloff homes while he was in charge of them. Right. He, he did force... Uh, pregnant teenagers who ended up at his homes to give their babies up for adoption, which I would say is a, a sort of a type of sexual abuse. But I, I didn't find anything about him sexually abusing people. Um, just physical torture. Yeah, it's very much a thing where like there's a difference between somebody who is just power hungry and wants to do whatever he can if he's got, you know, power over other people and somebody who is like ex- like extremely misguided and extremely abusive but like 100% believes that he's doing the right thing. Like that's the difference there. Right. It doesn't invalidate abuse that was suffered, but it does make it a different it's a different thing. It's a different motivation to commit the there abuse. You go. That's the, yeah. Doesn't make it any less bad. Right. It's not a, we don't play less bad or more bad with abuse on this show. Uh, but we do believe that the motivation behind someone being abused can, can affect the, um, it affects the whole story. It affects the whole narrative. I definitely agree with yeah. that. So we talked in the Roloff episode about how George Bush, as governor of Texas, was pushing legislation that would allow Christian child care centers and schools, including reform homes and part of the troubled teen industry like Roloff Homes, Bethesda, so on, to opt out of state licensing requirements. Well, it turns out that David Gibbs III was an active part of pushing that legislation. And he stepped up beside his father to defend multiple, multiple cases involving child abuse at these facilities in Texas and in other states. Another thing I want to point out before we get too far into this is that someone has to defend child abusers when they go to court. So I don't want to say that any lawyer who defends someone who is accused of something terrible is a bad person. Because of the way our justice system works when it works, it's meant to give everybody representation. Yeah. I I mean, there's a huge difference between being a public defender who is fulfilling a constitutional right that these people have, you know, to legal counsel and being like, we defend child abusers. If you are a Christian, the laws don't apply to you and you won't have to pay. Like, that's their calling card. 
Yes. And to your point, the defense that the CLA tended to apply in these situations was either, number one, this person isn't really so bad, they're being persecuted for their their sincere beliefs, or number two, this person believes that the Bible tells them to hit kids, so it's a matter of religious freedom. This is not a sound legal argument. I just want to say it like. Well, I don't think they win a lot of cases. <laughs> Good. It's it's really hard to say for sure because it's hard to find a list of what they've done. I'll, I'll, I'm going to circle back to that. I'll just put a pin in that one. I think where this falls for me is that if David Gibbs III defended one or two cases like this, I'd be more inclined to believe that he really just was a true believer and believed in these people's religious freedom or believed that they weren't bad people. But like you said, making a career out of call me if you get in trouble for beating a child is way different than defending a guilty person so that they'll have a fair trial or defending a guilty person that you mistakenly believe is innocent. Yeah. Yeah. See, this this feels like such a grift to me. Maybe it's I don't know. Like, I can't imagine going all the way through law school and passing the bar exam and still coming out the other side, believing that basically, if you say I'm a Christian, then that's like a get out of jail free card. You don't have to follow the law. Hmm. I don't, like, maybe it's sort of like a hybrid between the two, because like, this is a defense that, you know, if you go to these fundies and, you know, they've been accused of committing a crime, like, like say they were beating a child very horribly and then child protective services get involved and then you know they get arrested for child abuse or something like that and they're like this is what it said to do in the bible like the fundies will be like absolutely it's my constitutional right to beat this child i mean even if it's not uh you know even if it's it's horrible hmm. because they'll say it's you know part of their religious beliefs but like and so that is a defense if you pitch them that defense in the pitch meeting for like these are our possible legal strategies this is what we're going to go with and you say we're going to go with I have the right to beat my child because I'm a Christian. They're going to say, yeah, that's the one. I'm going to go for that. This is the thing that we're talking about. Like we saw with the thing in Texas, though, they're actively trying to change the laws of this country. Like we saw, you know, with George Bush to make this sort of defense legitimate. I mean, Doug Phillips made this cognitive dissonance work somehow as a lawyer. And I look at this kind of guy like Doug Phillips or David Gibbs III, a fundamentalist that is brainy enough to survive out in the real world, even smart enough to pass the bar and get a law degree, but still believes fundamentally that if you're a Christian, you can break laws because of religious freedom and still can't see women as equal to men in the case of Doug Phillips. I don't know what David Gibbs III's views are on women. I think this level of cognitive dissonance is kind of the natural result of putting a very bright, just naturally smart child in a restrictive religious environment. So I've, I, here's a question for you. Okay. Why didn't Jim Bob Duggar call the CLA when Josh got arrested? Well, the Duggars have a longstanding relationship with Travis Story, who was originally Josh Duggar's lawyer. Um, and then they ended up adding on Justin Gelfland and one other person. Maybe Jim Bob called up the CLA and the CLA was like, there's no way he's being persecuted. He's guilty and we're not touching this with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I do want to talk about who David Gibbs III did defend. Okay, let's do that. So the next few cases that I'm discussing, I'm getting my information from a very well written and well referenced article called The Fixer 
Christian Lawyers History Defending Abusers. That will be linked with everything else in the free Patreon post for anybody who would like to see it. As always, you can access that post. Regardless of whether you ever give us a dime, it'll be uh, on our Patreon page, but it's free to everybody. First up, in connection to the Roloff Holmes, in 1997, Gibbs III did defend Faye Cameron, who is Wiley Cameron's wife. The two of them were directors together of the Rebecca Home for Girls at the time. Faye beat a 17-year-old girl badly with the help of three men who were also on staff and then neglected to give her medical attention afterwards. Ah. David Gibbs III was her personal attorney in this case. He downplayed the seriousness of what had happened and praised her years of faithful service to the ministry. She lost her case and received a lifetime ban from working with children in the state of Texas. Later, David Gibbs III was asked by Homeschoolers Anonymous if he had defended Faye Cameron, and he said that he had no no recollection of serving as her defense attorney. When he was shown evidence that he had, in fact, been her defense attorney, he said, the details escape me. Wow. Look, we've all taken L's that we've wanted to forget, but DG3 has, I guess he's actually achieved that. (sighs) Either that or he's just lying through his teeth, but who knows? Well, you know, whenever an attorney says that they don't recall something, it's usually because lawyers are very busy people. And details just tend to fall out of their busy, busy brains. It's a real problem with such very busy, important people like lawyers. This distinctly reminds me of the time when last... Do you remember when Jim Bob Duggar was asked... What was it that they asked Jim Bob Duggar about? And I I, I don't recall. Hmm, I don't recall either. (laughs) Think of... No. Um, Jim Bob Duggar was asked about the details of his children being abused, but he didn't remember any of those details because he has suddenly developed amnesia between his Megyn Kelly interview just a few years ago and his son's uh, child sex abuse materials trial in 2021. Like his his daughters were sexually abused by his son and it was a big deal and on TV and everything. And he doesn't recall any of the details. You would think that that would be a fairly memorable occurrence. Yes. Even in a even in a family where everybody went to therapy and got help and lived happily ever after. This this man, DG3, doesn't recall anything. I trust him about as much as I trust like all you can eat sushi for six ninety (laughs) nine. So in 2000. Four staffers from People's Baptist Church and Lighthouse Home for Young Men, which were both founded by Lester Roloff, were arrested for physically abusing and allegedly urinating on two teenage boys in their care. What? Gross. Yeah, there's there's more. The more you look into, like, troubled teen industry, the more you find people non-consensually peeing on each other in mean and not consensual ways. Once I started reading up on the cases that David Gibbs III has been involved with, all of the rule-off home ones involve either like kids not being allowed to go to the bathroom and having accidents because of that, kids being peed on. It's it's a lot. It's uh, very disturbing. You'll give them kidney failure later in life. That's what you'll do. Yeah. Yeah, there, it gets like it gets real f-ed up in that particular direction real quick. So it's unclear whether David Gibbs III represented those four staffers from Lighthouse Home who were arrested in court. 
I do know that he conducted the internal investigation for People's Baptist Church, much like his father did a few years later for First Baptist Church of Hammond. In his internal investigation, he determined that these claims were, quote, exaggerated and that the discipline that actually occurred was appropriate. He was asked by Homeschoolers Anonymous about this internal investigation, to which he replied, I have no recollection of any internal investigation at People's Baptist Church. I am sensing a pattern here. Yep. Uh, To continue the pattern, he was shown evidence that he did do the internal investigation at People's Baptist Church, and he changed course back, back to, oh, yes, I do remember doing that. The claims were exaggerated. Imagine being on DG3's team at Pub Trivia. <laughs> like, it, just, he, he can't remember anything. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I can't recall. You can't, that's where he can't, can't he can't recall. Like, you'd think he would be really useful. Like, Duke Law School, gotta have some knowledge. Can't recall anything. <laughs> How many Super Bowl rings does Joe Montana have? Uh, I, I can't recall. I, I can't recall. Who played the dad on Family Matters? I, I, I can't recall. I can't. What's the capital of Bolivia? I, I can't recall. <laughs> but when you win the trophy, he's there to take the credit, I bet. That sounds extremely accurate. DG3, man, he is such a freeloader. I'm telling you, man, pub trivia freeloader DG3, David Gibbs III. So I want to move on to one other case that he did before we get to the big one. So just assume that all the other things that he did that involved troubled teen industry were just pretty similar. So what case is this? So throughout the 1990s, Trinity Baptist Church and Pastor Chuck Phelps had an ongoing problem with child abusers, not just one, but several in the church. One young woman named Cheryl was being molested repeatedly by her stepfather. Oh. Pastor Phelps told the stepfather to stop. But when he didn't stop, the pastor told Cheryl to just forgive and forget. I know, like, I should be used to this by now, but every time you tell me something like this, it just breaks my brain a little bit. I mean, it's it's just misogyny. Like, that's what it is. It's the concept that your body doesn't belong to you because it belongs to God. But if you happen to be a woman as well, your body double does not belong to you. It is taught depersonalization. It's brainwashed in depersonalization. And you end up walking around feeling like you don't belong in your own body, like your body is not attached to the essence of who you are, which takes some serious fucking therapy down the road, let me tell you. And if somebody assaults you, That's something that can be forgotten and forgiven because you are so disconnected from your body and the concept of ownership of your own body. So we're going to talk about that at some point in the future. I think we should definitely do an episode about that. Yeah, if I if I go off on something that passionately. Yeah, that's how we know. I'm just going to like add it to our Google Doc. (laughs) Like, here's the thing that I don't get. If you molest your own stepdaughter, how do they not punish you? How? Well, How? Like, well, the pastor told him to stop twice. Isn't that good enough? Yeah, but doesn't he get in trouble for disobeying the pastor? So men don't actually get in trouble very often in the IFB. Women can actually be punished. And we're going to talk about such a case in a second here. But what I mean, think logically, what can an IFB pastor actually do to a grown man? 
They're not going to have a public beating. What are they going to do? Put him in stocks. What is the pastor going to do? The, the only thing a pastor can really do to an adult man is run him out of the church, strip him of his leadership positions, try to make him and his family go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Unless he's on staff at the church and the pastor controls his income. What about with like, you know, J. Frank Norris, where you convince yeah. where you convince everybody that like if they if you go against what the pastor says, then you're going to get into a car crash and die and your brains are going to end up in a jar. Oh, that's God punishing them. Men who misbehave in IFB churches are mostly just threatened with horrible punishments from God. It's all threats and smoke and mirrors. There's a lot less that they can actually do to a man. Well, no wonder Josh Duggar thought he would get off, man. That's yeah. I mean, that's terrific insight into what's actually going on here. I guess I'd never really seen it like all laid out like that before. You hear about a culture of no accountability, but like Yeah, whoa. it's like women can be physically punished. There is a lot and and as far as like emotional punishments or taking something away, there is women don't have power over their own bodies or their own possessions. So there is a lot more that can be done to a woman in the IFB. Like you can restrict her movements. Um, you can control her physically in a way that they don't really have that power over men. Uh, with men, it's just it's just a lot of threats and emotional abuse that it's almost it's all almost militaristic in how they condition and train men to be repressed and obedient. It's not like, oh, we'll give you the worst soul winning route every single time or. No, because that's a blessing. So in the same year as Cheryl was raped by her stepfather, a 14 year old church member named Tina was babysitting for Ernest Willis, who was also a church member. Ernest Willis raped her twice and she ended up discovering that she was pregnant. Tina was subjected to church discipline. She had to stand in front of the church and confess her sins a 14-year-old child. That makes me so mad. Willis, on the other hand, remained a member in good standing of the church and was still allowed to have other teenage girls from the church come to babysit for him. (sighs) So Pastor Phelps did report the sexual assault, Tina's sexual assault, to the police. But before he did so, he moved Tina across state lines so that when the police tried to investigate her assault, Tina was in another state, being homeschooled, having no contact with the outside world, and being forced to put her baby up for adoption. That is like the worst. Mm, This is like not even a, this is like a cartel. So the weird thing is that when this went to trial years later, Willis, the rapist, went on trial. The pastor, Chuck Phelps, and Tina's mother were not on trial. But the CLA showed up for some reason to be the attorney for Pastor Phelps and for Tina's mother, even though neither of them were the people on trial for this. Well, the DA probably was trying to investigate them or like. Yeah, that makes sense because David Gibbs III specifically tried to prevent Phelps from having to testify against Willis. He invoked clergy parishioner privilege, although his motion was denied by the judge. While DJ3 wasn't Willis defense attorney and pastor phelps wasn't on trial for some reason he felt like he needed to insert himself into this situation very aggressively so after tina's case went to trial and ernest willis was convicted cheryl the young woman from the first story who was being abused by her stepfather also had the courage to step forward about what had happened to her once again pastor phelps was a side character in this he wasn't on trial but dg3 needed to be there for some reason in the cheryl case 
DG3 said that Phelps had been told incorrectly by the family that CPS had already been notified. And so that's why he felt like he didn't need to do anything else. Personally, I do not understand why CLA would want their name involved with this. Because like their whole MO is that right they're the white knight for Christians, right? Isn't that their brand? Yeah, very much. Or are they trying to put it out there that like even if you protect the worst abusers that there are, like the worst like pedophiles, you know, child abusers, child rapists, like if you're Christian, CLA will show up and go to bat for you. I think the vibe here is supposed to be, well, this poor pastor had some sinful people in his church who did terrible things, but that could happen to any pastor. And it's not his fault that his church members were sinners. This pastor is a good man, and he can't go to the trial of his church members without legal counsel because the wicked court system is going to try to pull this pastor into it and put him in jail, too. So we're here to make sure that this good pastor is taken care of and he doesn't have to go to jail because someone in his church did bad things. I don't think it's particularly effective. No. But I think that's what they're going for. Isn't there a verse in the Bible about how if you see wickedness and do nothing, then you're also wicked? Or am I misremembering that? I can't come up with the reference. Oh, you're just like David. You're like DG3. You can't recall. I can't recall. <laughs> no, the verse that comes to mind is the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on it are punished. But that's, I feel like there's a more, a more accurate reference yeah. to if you see wickedness and do nothing, but I'm not coming up with it because that proverb is stuck in my head instead. There's probably something in there somewhere. I don't know. Even if it's not in the Bible, it's still basic stuff when it comes to morality. You would think. So I'm going to give David Gibbs III an opportunity to maybe redeem himself at the end of this episode. But before we do that, we have to talk about the absolute biggest thing that he or the CLA was ever involved in. Okay, let's do it. Here we go. Mm. So... At the beginning of the second half of this episode, I spoke about how the CLA acts essentially as a sword and a shield for the religious right. They defend abusers. Uh, They also leverage wedge issues to try and push a right wing religious political agenda. So sword and shield. And if this isn't the perfect example of that, then I don't know what is. So, Sadie, would you like to just take it away? Let's jump in. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are our age or older will remember the Terry Schiavo case. But for those who aren't terribly familiar, Terry was a woman from St. Petersburg, Florida, who had an unexpected heart incident at the age of 26. She was revived but suffered extreme brain damage and was diagnosed months later as being in a persistent vegetative state. So she was not in a coma. She wasn't on what we traditionally consider life support like a ventilator. She had respiration and pulse on her own with no intervention, but she was not able to swallow and she depended on a feeding tube for nutrition and hydration. Terry's parents wanted to be there for her daughter as many different therapies were tried to see if her condition would improve, to see if there was any chance of, you know, she'd never be her her old self again, but if there was any chance of her having quality of life. Terry's husband, Michael Shiva, was also involved. And at first, Terry's parents and her husband were kind of on the same page. From the beginning, everyone knew that it was unlikely for her to ever make a full recovery, but they wanted to see if there would be any recovery at all. Eventually, it became obvious that she was not going to improve much, if at all, 
from the persistent vegetative state that went on for months and years. Michael said that Terry told him that she would not want to be kept alive if her mind was no longer functioning, and he began to petition to have her feeding tube removed, which would eventually cause her to die. This was a conversation, like he says that they. this was something they'd spoken about. This is a conversation that they would likely have had because Terry, I believe she'd been hospitalized before for bulimia, which was actually the cause of the heart issue that left her in the vegetative state to begin with. Yeah. And I feel for her just for that. Like this is this is tragic. Yeah. To begin with before the other tragic things that happened. Um, Michael also said that they watched a movie together where someone was on life support and she made her wishes known to him at that time, which tracks that does make sense to me. There was also, I I just want to say, there was also like a separate malpractice suit. Uh, I believe Michael sued the doctor who disregarded her past history of eating disorders, and he won that malpractice suit, and the majority of the settlement went into a trust dedicated to paying for uh, Terry's medical expenses. Rough stuff. Yeah, this this is, is a tragic situation before it becomes a media circus of a tragic situation. Every family's worst nightmare. Yeah, this this is just a rough one, even before all the outside forces get involved. So there are a lot of things that we don't have time to get ridiculously involved in for this episode, but there's a very good possibility that Michael and Terry didn't have a great relationship before she was hospitalized, or even that they could have been headed for a breakup. Terry's parents say that not only did they not trust their son-in-law with this decision, but they felt that their daughter was aware that she was communicating with them through blinks and hand gestures. They felt that she was understanding their voices because she would smile when they walked into the room. They insinuated that Michael maybe just wanted to get rid of his wife, and the parents wanted to have him removed from power of attorney so that they could keep her alive indefinitely through the feeding tube, trying to get her condition to improve. Michael even though he had moved on and was in a new relationship after a long time of Terry being in a vegetative state, Michael refused to divorce her because he said that he wanted her last wishes to be honored. And as long as they were married, he had the power of attorney to make that decision for her, remove the feeding tube, and let her die. Her parents said that they wanted to honor the Catholic faith that they and Terry shared and that they were trying to wrest the power of attorney back from Michael to be able to keep her alive. They also thought that given enough time, they could get her to swallow on her own, which would preclude the problem of the feeding tube and mean that she was technically not on life support, which would invalidate this entire question of whether or not it could be removed. There is also the fact that if Terry died while married to Michael, he would receive her estate, while if they divorced, her parents would get the estate, which is kind of an equal sum game because there is a benefit for whoever is has the power of attorney when she died how do you how can you divorce somebody while they're brain dead and i guess not on life support but like brain dead and on a feeding tube because like by the time this started by the time this whole kerfuffle started between them where he was trying to petition to get the feeding tube removed she'd been uh she'd had the feeding tube for almost eight years so the requirements vary from state to state But you can divorce someone who can't or won't sign the papers. Um, Even if one spouse wants to get divorced and the other one just refuses to sign off on it, usually it's like within 90 days, the divorce will go to the courts, regardless of whether the recipient of the paper signs them or not. Mm. 
I, I do kind of take issue with the terms brain dead and life support, though. There was a law passed in Florida to qualify the feeding tube as life support for specifically for purposes of this case. My issues with those terms may just be fundy brainwashing, which we're going to get to in a minute. So there was a lawsuit. As we said before, Terry's parents were trying to get Michael, they're trying to get power of attorney away from Michael, uh, and it stretched out for seven years. So uh, just timeline, she went into cardiac arrest in 1990. Michael petitioned to have the feeding tube removed in 1998, and this case was being litigated until 2005. So 15 years that this woman is on the feeding tube. Yeah. And half of the time, almost half of the time, uh, is is taken up with this court case. Right. This case just blew up to epic proportions. Enter the right to lifer political media machine to make yep. everything worse. Yep. Oh. Because some people saw this as Terry told her husband and she told multiple other people that if she were ever incapacitated to this ex extent, she would not want to be kept alive, in her words, by machines. But other people saw this as being very different from someone who is being kept alive by a ventilator, for example, and saw this as court-ordered murder. And that's where David Gibbs III stepped in as pro bono attorney for Terry Schiavo's parents in this legal battle. So, Sadie. Yes. Out of curiosity, I want to know what you were hearing about Terry Schiavo as opposed to what I was hearing, because I like this was a major, major, major political thing going down, uh, major news news issue in the country. And I distinctly remember hearing a lot about this when like hearing my dad talk about it and hearing about it on the news. So the narrative that I was hearing was that Michael Shiva was a liar, that he had been an abusive husband, and that now he had already moved on with his new partner, and he just wanted Terry to die and not be his problem anymore. Which is a horrible thing to say about anybody. Yes. And now I don't think I believe that, having read Michael's words. I don't believe this part of the narrative that I was being given. I do think I might still believe the other part of the narrative that I was given. So what's that? I'm curious. So it's about her about her condition. Mm -hmm. Because I was told that she was responsive to her parents. She was severely, severely brain damaged, but not brain dead. I'm linking a set of videos that you can see. It's just raw footage of Terry at the time that this legal battle was going on. We'll have that video linked in the both in the show notes and in uh, Sadie's document of uh, of sources. Believe it or not, I have seen this video before. This was a video that was playing constantly on the news during that time. So like, really? You, oh yeah. So like, and this was this was big, big, big news. And we didn't. I didn't have cable growing up, but. It was something that you would even see on like the, the evening news where, or you would see clips of this video on the evening news. So that's shocking to me because I was being told that the news wouldn't play these videos because everybody was trying to make it okay to kill this woman. Really? Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, I guess that tracks with the fundies. The, yeah. yeah, that's the narrative that I was hearing about this. Yeah. The, the, the Satan controls the media. I swear, eventually Dinah is going to have a bingo card made for this one where every time I mentioned that my dad uh, was a physician, 
But I remember my dad being livid about the things that right-wing news media was saying about this video because they were saying, oh, this video proves that she's uh, you know, alive and conscious and responsive. And he's basically telling me that all the things that they're saying are just flatly untrue. Well, there were there were MRIs done that showed that very little of her brain was functional. So I do have to agree that conscious is a real big word to describe what Terry was experiencing. Right. You know, what they were saying, like if you would turn on Fox News and, you know, we didn't get Fox News because we didn't have cable. But, you know, my dad would always keep track of what was being said on Fox News because he, he was like what they're saying on Fox News is, is evil and, and stuff. like. And he was always up in arms about whatever people were saying about Fox News because it, because of how wrong it was. But it was always, you know, the liberals want to kill vulnerable and helpless people who can't advocate for themselves. So basically, you know, killing Terry Schiavo. Mm -hmm. They want to kill, you know, all the babies that are getting aborted. That like So this was just a, a prime place for the CLA and David Gibbs III to step in. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So like, the, I mean, the way that he explained it to me, and I was like 11 or 12 when this was happening, was that there was very little upper level brain activity. So things like reflexes, things like, you know, breathing. So like brainstem is working. Reflexes are working. And like, you know, any responses that you see in, in the video are basically reflexes. So like if you say if I went and I touched your hand and like rubbed your hand or something and you were sleeping, your face might change, right? Right. You, know, you, you might get like a little smile on your face. I mean, I'd probably wake up and punch you because I'm a light sleeper and I wake up ready to fight. Wow. I did not know that, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she like, she could like have her eyes open. If you, if you rub Chuck's hand while she was sleeping, she'd probably smile. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like that. Like say you, you, you rub Chuck's hand while she, like she's not conscious if that's what she's doing, but, but she'll do that. Because it's, it's not like upper level brain activity. It's like lower level brain activity. So like, like her, Terry's eyes could be open, but she, her brain would not be able to process what it was that she was seeing or like the information wouldn't be get, getting in there. Like, but she'd blink because, you know, blinking is a reflex. So they're coming in and they're saying, blink once if you want to live, blink twice if you don't. And she blinks once because, you know, that's like a reflex. They're going to be like, okay, great. She told us she wants to live. So it's kind of confirmation bias. Oh, absolutely. Like, and you had Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, you remember him? Oh yeah, what a chump. He, he was going on his show saying, I've seen the video and she is alive and awake. It's just not true, like at all. Not even a little bit. So there, I'm, I'm going to get to my opinion on this in a minute. Actually, I'll, I'll do my opinion on this now. For me, this almost goes back to what we were talking about a couple weeks ago with Right to Die. Um, yes. I still feel like the, the condition that Terry was in is different from the condition of someone who has no brain activity. It is different from the condition of someone who is in a coma. It is different from the condition of somebody who is being kept alive because their heart and lungs are being forced to function by machines. I still do believe that her condition is a step above that cognitively. And I still believe that she should have the right to choose to die. And that if she is not capable of making that decision, that someone else should be able to make it for her. But before we get to that 
that point, there was a senator who was a physician trying to, he was a surgeon actually, trying to diagnose her on the floor of the Senate, having never seen her, trying to argue whether she was or wasn't in a persistent vegetative state. The whole thing was a mess, and it was kind of this ideal situation for DJ3 to show up and be like, I'm the voice for the voiceless. Right. Yeah, that's... DG3 shows up and he's the lawyer for Terry Shivo's parents trying to get Michael uh, power of attorney revoked and transferred. Right. He was representing her parents through the multiple court cases and just the winding trail that the legal system took through this case, representing them on television, that sort of thing. I don't know. This kind of makes me want to go back and cover the case in more detail. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, if we're just going to do like a podcast episode about one case or like a podcast series about one news item. It, like this would be a fascinating case to cover from, from that perspective. But this was so complicated because it started out in Florida court system. And then the U S Congress passed a resolution to transfer the case into federal court, uh, which by itself was it, like getting that passed was its own big political melodrama. Yes. And Terry's parents were challenging Michael Shivo, challenging the courts. They even went before a judge and claimed that Terry attempted to enunciate, I want to live right before her feeding tube was removed. Like you were saying before about it being like confirmation, but like that's that's what that is to me. Like they're looking for shapes in the cloud. Yeah. But like if if that isn't like absolute like gold for the right to lifers i don't know what is having watched the videos of her having read about this a bit and having read about her autopsy uh i don't think she was capable of saying that with any kind of meaning her mother asked her to say i want to live and she responded vocally as she often responded vocally to people who spoke to her yeah and of course like if you're fundy Right. If you're fundy, then you believe that God is going to heal her and that she is going to wake up and that it's going to be a miracle. And that if you remove the feeding tube, then you're doubting God's power. Yeah. So her making noises is evidence of God's power that like, you know, she's trying to make a recovery. And if you take out the feeding tube, then you're ignoring God's messages. Right. They're going to apply this to the same logic as um, why they believe that you can't uh, have an abortion if you find out that the baby that you're carrying late in pregnancy is going to have massive health issues that are incompatible with life, they will tell you that you should still carry the baby in case God heals them. Mm. Uh, they're going to apply that same thing to Terry. Uh, for me, the whole thing comes down to that she should have made a living will and that everybody should have a living will because that would have prevented this whole thing. Because personally, I don't have any problem with somebody who would want their life preserved at any cost. And I don't have any problem with someone who wants nothing to do with living in that kind of state. I just want both of those people to get the outcome that they want and for it not to be turned into a media circus. Well, that's one of the major results, though. Uh, about about the living will is that a lot of people after seeing the whole fiasco that this case turned into made sure that they had documented what they wanted so they were either like keep me alive no matter what because they might find a cure or they might have said yeah just take the feeding tube out i don't want to be kept alive by artificial means and that's certainly a good outcome of a tragic case no matter how you cut it the interesting thing and th- where i think this relates to our topic today is that David Gibbs III had been previously allied with George Bush when he was the governor of Texas because of the Roloff Homes alternative accreditation and licensing bill thing. 
And then in Florida, with the Terry Schiavo case, he became allies with Jeb Bush, because as the governor of Florida at the time, Jeb Bush really wanted to keep her on the feeding tube, but he didn't have the legal power to do so. And George Bush had moved on to the presidency. So now David Gibbs III has an ally in the governor of Florida and the president of the United States, who he's pulling on to try to get this case to turn out in his favor. But I mean, it all came to naught because what did did the court find in favor of Michael or did she die before the case could be settled? They finally, finally found that spouses have the ability to make decisions for each other when incapacitated, period. Uh, they The feeding tube was removed. Um, people tried to like sneak food and water into Terry while they, the parents were appealing it over and over in the time that it took her to die. Um, there was just, just drama and political theater. But, but they did eventually... Um, Allow the courts allowed the feeding tube to be removed, and then Terry died, I think, 13 days later. And I still have a lot of feelings about this case because I feel like allowing the feeding tube to be removed was ultimately the right legal decision, but it's still the worst outcome because the 15 years that passed between her accident and her death and then 13 days just waiting for her to die. Autopsy results showed that Terry had no discernible neurons left and that her brain had atrophied to less than half of the average size. So it's very unlikely that she felt anything more than discomfort, even if that, in the 13 days between the removal of her feeding tube and her death. But this was all just so inefficient and so dragged out, and it must have been miserable. We don't know that it was miserable for Terry. It probably wasn't that miserable for her but it was miserable for everyone else involved. My grandmother died peacefully over the course of about four days from a Sunday night to a Wednesday afternoon. And even in the best, most peaceful scenario with those she loved around her exactly, you know, if you, if your loved one was going to, was going to die, that's, it was a pretty good way for that to happen. Those four days were so long. Those four days, I was there for most of it. I was up all night. those four days were awful. And I feel for Terry's parents because I feel like they were there for 13 days and I cannot imagine. I don't agree with most of the things that her parents did in this situation, but it breaks my heart that it took so long for them to have a resolution. That is just, that is, that is just sounds awful for everybody. I shouldn't need to say this. This is terrible for everybody involved. Terry, her parents, Michael, like hard, like an ordeal is is putting it lightly you know it's it's tragic and i think the worst part of all of this was the decision to turn this basically into political theater it's just the worst possible outcome for everybody and this was compounded upon did you hear about the, like there was a sh- the shivo memo that was leaked and it turned out that like republican political operatives had been speaking explicitly about how to use this case as a wedge issue against their political opponents. I I didn't read about that, but it doesn't surprise me and it makes but it it, yeah. it makes me mad because they said that this was about pro-life and this was about Terry's life, but it kind of seems like it wasn't about her or her life at all. So the Shivo case is just one thing. And I know we spend a lot of time on that, but I'm just I'm fascinated with it. So oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> forgive, it's, forgive me. Yeah. This is this is one of my morbid interests. But also, I think it's 
it's a it's an important example of how the CLA is a massive underlying thread in the fabric of Christian fundamentalism and fundamentalist politics. I mean, imagine a guy from my little tiny cult corner of the world in the very highest circles in the very biggest of media cir- circuses. I had no like I knew that about the involvement in this particular case, but I had no idea how involved the CLA was in basically every fundamentalist media circus of the past 20-something years. Yeah. I mean, really almost 30 years if you look back to the the roll-off home cases in the 90s. Well, if you go back to the ones in like the, the 70s. Yeah. You know, the, like, I mean, that's this 40 is, years. I I just, I knew that the CLA was involved in everything, but I had no idea how much of everything that they were involved in. Yeah, I, I had no idea that the people behind like the the legal push with this Terry Schiavo case were also involved in defending pedophiles and people who protect pedophiles. But anyway, like so, this was like a huge public L for DG three and the CLA. Yes, but was it really? I mean, obviously, mm. yes. They lost the court case. They ran out of appeals. They ran out of time. Terry Schiavo died. But from a PR standpoint, I think this is still kind of a win because now it's the CLA, the organization who bravely fought to the bitter end. And also they have a martyr, which is always a useful thing if you're trying to make a political point. Yeah, but like the thing that like the CLA never wins, though, like out of all of the there was one case that they won that we talked about and it was the case where it was like well it could have been the ACLU that did it but the CLA did it as well. like they've they've like one victory that we've talked about that was like big in public i don't know it's it's kind of like you know krillin from dragon ball z sure have you ever seen that meme where it's like if your lawyer's pants look like this then you're going to jail yes it's kind of like that like if if your lawyer's name is david gibbs or david gibbs the 3rd then <laughs> You're you're about to lose your appeal. <laughs> so I want to tell you about one last thing, because I'm really curious to hear if this changes how you feel about this. OK, hit me. So we've talked before about how Lourdes Torres sued Doug Phillips for sexually harassing and abusing her when she was a nanny for his family in the Vision Forum episode. I mentioned in that episode that David Gibbs III was the lawyer for Lourdes. Wait, so DG3 went against Vision Forum and the fundies? Yes. He stepped away from the CLA in 2012-ish and started his own organization, the National Institute for Life and Liberty, which is still a markedly Christian, markedly conservative organization, but he has positioned himself as the lawyer for people who are suing churches for abuse, and he has represented victims of church abuse and spiritual abuse since then. Really? Yes. Wow. In fact, remember at the top of the episode, we talked about how David Gibbs Jr., the father of David Gibbs III, was called in to head up the internal investigation of Bill Gothard in 2014 when all the Recovering Grace stuff came out? Yes. And then they swept all the wrongdoing under the rug and allowed Bill Gothard to like gracefully step down from his... Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Gothard was being sued by Gretchen Wilkinson over alleged sexual abuse. Guess who was originally supposed to be Wilkinson's lawyer? No. David Gibbs III. Wow, that is extremely spicy, and I want to know what happened there. This is so. This is such a twist. 
DG3 was supposed to be the lawyer for Gretchen Wilkinson, but Bill Gothard and the IBLP's lawyers filed a petition with the judge that made some outlandish claims. Bill Gothard and one of his top staff members, Roger Blair, signed an affidavit that before becoming the attorney for Wilkinson, David Gibbs III visited Bill Gothard in his office with with Roger Blair present. According to Gothard and Blair, DG3 told them that he had insider knowledge of the recovering Grace claims and that he wanted to help Bill Gothard. David Gibbs III said that he knew the claims were false and they were just trying to take down Bill Gothard's ministry and he was there to help. Wait, so they're saying that DG3 was working as a double agent against his own client? That's what Bill Gothard is saying. What? David Gibbs III denies that this happened at all. And for once, I kind of believe him when he says that something didn't happen. Wait, so he's saying it didn't happen or did he say he didn't recall that it happened? He said it didn't happen. He straight out denied it. So like, okay, now you know he's serious. Yeah. So personally, so so there's options here. Did Bill Gothard just make this up to get David Gibbs III off the case? Probably. I could buy this. Did David Gibbs III go to Bill Gothard's office to, as a double agent, but his loyalty is to the accuser, but he went in there as a double agent to try to get information on Gothard that that he could then take back to his client to help her take down Gothard? That's so spicy. I could buy it. What? Or is David Gibbs the third telling the truth and this meeting never happened at all? Or is Bill Gothard telling the truth and David Gibbs was a double agent, but his loyalty was actually to Bill Gothard? Regardless, David Gibbs the third was pulled off the case by the judge because wow. it's just a like your word versus his situation. And the ethical thing to do was to not allow him to be involved with this case. So I'm curious about what made DG3 leave the CLA to begin with. Like I, I want like I want to know if he's just like, I am tired of losing these cases and defending like b- being part of like essentially the pedophile defense force. He's been very quiet and very lawyery about it all. Uh, the only thing you can really find him saying is, yes, I stepped away from the CLA. My dad is very legalistic and I wanted to go a different direction. Well, his dad's a lawyer, so you'd think he would be legalistic. But um sh- like no, in like the fundy sense, like like oh. the he's about the rules of the Bible. So I was really surprised researching this episode. I know I said this, but I I just did not know how much these people have been involved in. Yeah, it's like a spider web, man. It's just, uh... It it's what creeps me out a little bit is that it's everywhere. Like I knew that any court case involving First Baptist Church of Hammond, David Gibbs Jr. probably had his hands on it at some point. Like I knew that he was probably involved. Like it turns out that he was involved in the Tom Kimmel Ponzi scheme case, which makes sense. He was involved in the Jack Scott case, which makes sense. I had no idea that he was involved with the IBLP and also with Lester Roloff and also and also and also. I just I I had I could never have known just how omnipresent he is in the world of fundamentalist legal stuff. So would you like to know what my take on the CLAs? I would love to. Yes, I would love that. Pretty much all the cases that that the CLA is litigated, um, that, that we've talked about, most of them, fall into a very similar legal strategy, right? Which is where you say, the Constitution says I have freedom of religion, therefore religious activities are exempted from the laws of this country. 
which is wrong, which doesn't make sense from a legal standpoint, but it's their consistent legal theory that they always go for in these cases. Now, this could cut one of two ways, the way I see it. So either A, they know that this is a legal strategy that just doesn't work, but it's what their clients want to run with. It's what their clients believe in their hearts. So they run with it anyway. They get a ton of publicity and then they go around and ask for money and keep the grift going. Second option is that this is part of like a long-term strategy in which they litigate basically a ton of cases based on this legal strategy. It's like throwing spaghetti at a wall. Eventually you get something to get through the appeals court and you know you you get it appealed and you get it appealed and you get it appealed and you don't get the appeal denied eventually and it will make its way up to the supreme court and eventually hopefully maybe possibly if you're these guys the supreme court will be conservative enough and bonkers enough to rule in their favor and then they can just go back and flip all those l's and into their back catalog and turn them into W's and basically say, yeah, the Supreme Court says that if you're Christian, you don't have to follow the laws anymore. Right. I I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. You can see it because it's what they try with abortion. I can see it. And I also want to point out that all of the lawyers who do work for the CLA now get to say, uh, are you before the Supreme Court on their little lawyer resumes, even if it was pro bono work for the CLA. But out of those two options, what do you think is more likely? I see. I think the second one, but I don't see why it can't be a little bit of both. Because going back to the CLA, which now excludes David Gibbs III, David Gibbs Jr. has given himself something that not a lot of fundamentalist preachers are able to give themselves, and that's stability. He has a ministry that people send money to every month. He gets the speaking invitations, and he also has whatever private, private practice stuff he feels like doing or has time for. It's so interesting to me the way he's involved with just about everybody, because to me, that hints that he has a little bit of dirt on everybody. Finding out just how essential to fundamentalism as a whole David Gibbs and the CLA has been really makes me wonder if he's not one of the most powerful men in fundamentalism as well. Like he could be one of the top five most powerful men in fundamentalism, which I never would have predicted before researching this. He flies under the radar, but he's like hooked in with everybody. Like he even orchestrated Bill Gothard's like abdication from the IBLP throne. That's a huge deal. He like he's been fixer for all of these people. Wow. Yeah. And if you're everybody's fixer, then you have you have all the dirt and you understand how everything goes together. Right. And if you think about it, this guy's smart enough. Like, I don't, you know, I don't believe in glorifying people's intelligence based on their profession alone. You, like, you can't just say, oh, because somebody is a doctor or a lawyer, their IQ must be over 160. Like, that's not directly how it works. IQ is stupid anyway. Yes. But you do have to have a certain amount of natural intelligence to pass the courses and the testing that it takes to be in certain professions. You have to be good at something, either really clever or a really good guesser or good at memorizing facts. Like you have to have one of those markers of intelligence. So maybe David Gibbs Jr. is the guy that's smart enough to understand how the complicated web of fundamentalism is tangled together in a way that others of us have to put a lot of work into understanding. Maybe. The other thing is that I think this power he has isn't going anywhere. 
there hasn't been much posted on the CLA website recently. Like within the last year, there haven't been a lot of blog updates or anything. But uh, but their Facebook feed, as far as I could stomach scrolling back, was a lot of just Bible verses, pithy quotes. But an article from April, April 2020 on the CLA website talks about churches attempting to reopen after the first COVID lockdowns. And this is what they had to say. In the more than 50 years that the Christian Law Association has been defending churches, our attorneys have never seen a crisis of religious freedom like the one that the coronavirus has created in 2020. For the first time in modern American history, the government has outright told churches that they are, quote, not essential and ordered them to cease assembling. Let us be clear, churches are essential. So I'm skipping down a little ways here. Could the government ever have the legal power to order a church to temporarily close? The answer to that is likely yes, but it would require an extreme wartime scenario where everything is closed with no exceptions. The current situation is not that. If alcohol stores and cannabis stores can remain open, then under the Constitution of the United States, the church can certainly remain open as well. Make no mistake, the Christian Law Association is not advocating that every church immediately reopen. But we believe that under the law of this land, that decision should be yours to make, not the government's. Hmm. So they're not saying, yes, you can reopen, but they're saying you should be able to. They're saying it's a violation of your, your religious freedom that they say you can't, whether you want to or not. They Yeah. And they never say like legally. Right. Yeah. They, oh, that's that's I'm curious. Have they been involved in defending any churches from suits uh, or, or like charges relating to COVID mandates, mask mandates, vaccination? You would for- think that they had been. You would think that they'd be all over vaccination mandate cases. Yeah. But I wasn't able to find any kind of record of current cases that they're involved with. On the CLA website, you can sign up to, quote, stay up to date on the latest legal battles threatening our freedoms. But I just I just I can't give them my email address. I just can't handle it. I'm sorry. You think that they would be like that they would see that as an opportunity and that they would be blasting that from, you know, the rooftops that like like they could go around the country defending everybody and make big headlines, you know, do what they do, piss off the libs, rake in the cash donations. You would think. Now, I am aware that law firms don't have to publish a list of every case that they're involved in or anything like that. I am aware that that's not common practice. Uh, I'm not saying specifically that the CLA is hiding anything in specific. I do think it's odd for a ministry that solicits donations to do what they do isn't publishing what they're actually doing with the donations. A lot of law firms that I checked out when I was taking a business law course the last semester that I was in school published updates of, oh, we worked on this, we worked on that. These are clients who have given us permission to share the details of their case. The consulting firm with the (laughs) uh, mostly real computer expert that was hired for Josh Duggar's defense posted a list of every court case that they were involved in and what the outcome was. Did it include the Josh Duggar case? No, because that was current at the time. I'm sure it does now. Oh. Um, I haven't checked. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked back. I should look at that. It seems to me that the CLA brings in upwards of $3 million in donations in an average year. You would think that they publish, we did this, we did this, we won this case, we lost this battle, but there is just nothing even like for donors to see this is where your money is going. 
no, no. Like I Googled it every way that I could think of, like current CLA cases, past CLA cases. I scoured their website and I just, I wasn't able to find like, you would think that a a legal ministry would at least want to publish a list of their big wins. Like I get it. Like we don't want to publish our, you know, I don't publish... I don't publish a list of my like five least favorite podcast episodes that I've ever done. No, I mean, but I, I, we, that would be interesting. We could publish that. Uh, uh, I mean, we we could, but <laughs> but we we make it pretty well known, like which ones we think we did a great job on. It seems so weird that they don't even have a list of their wins published anywhere. Right. Like, so say, like if you give money or if you're on the mailing list of like, I don't know, like Planned Parenthood or like the Planned Parenthood legal uh, arm that I, I can't remember what they're called. If you're on their mailing list or if, or if you give them money, then they'll send you an email saying this state tried to pass a 10 week abortion ban and we got that reversed in the court. And like you'll get an email that says that, like, that's what we did this year. This is where your money went to. But the CLA isn't doing that. That's right. Really... The CLA is just soliciting donations and it is impossible to find what they have worked on. Even like past cases, nothing. Maybe they just haven't been winning. Maybe that I like... mean, yeah, that's totally possible. I don't know. I might have to break down and use a burner email to get on their mailing list because maybe they're just only Maybe they're just not publishing and they're only doing it through the mailing list. Yeah, they have a I don't know terrible win record anyway. They, like, yeah, and they like they seem they're just so secretive about what they do. And uh, again, I'm not making any kind of specific allegation at all. I just think it's weird, and I'm gonna keep an eye on it. So if anybody knows of any active CLA cases um, or anything recent, feel free to shoot me a line because I'd, I'd be very interested to follow up on this. Anyway, I think that's about all the time that we've got for today. Uh, Tune in next week. Sadie, what are we talking about next week? I feel like we hadn't nailed down for sure what we were doing next week. We don't know what we're doing next week. Uh, It's a surprise. Uh, If you find out what we're doing next week, please tell us because we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, if you know what we're covering next week, please let us know. Yeah, we have a list, but the list is wrong. Uh, yeah, if you want to uh, support our show, you can join our Patreon where you can hear some an extremely sus conversation that we had earlier. Uh, I don't know if you actually want to hear that, though. I would Which only one like... about sushi? No, the sushi one was wholesome. I was talking the one about tortellini. Oh, right. <laughs> I was going to the hand-holding one. Yeah. If you want to hear three strange conversations that we had during the course of this episode. Yeah. If you can subscribe to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And just to remind you, that is also where you can find the free post with sources for this episode. Not going to talk about lawyers without backing up myself with sources. Yeah. Good idea. Although I did tweet that David Gibbs, the third is a, uh, pub trivia freeloader because he can't recall anything from my personal twitter and then i retweeted it from the podcast account so you oh good lord yeah we're gonna get sued for libel by david gibbs the third uh all things that i said were said in jest uh as as part of a a larger joke therefore anyway uh you can god i'm so tired i'm tired and super hyped up on iced coffee uh 
You can join our Facebook group, uh, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can, uh, you can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash R slash Eden Exodus. And, uh, what else is it? Um, social media. Yeah. The, oh yeah. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Yep, you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music or on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie. Also on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. And you guys have a good day. Bye bye. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.